Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking here as we continue to analyze and dissect and digest the results of the 2022 elections, especially here in New York, but of course also nationally and how the New York results, particularly in the U.S. House of Representatives, are impacting things across the country in New York. Overall, it was a very good election for Republicans, a bad one for Democrats, though Democrats did stave off catastrophe in a narrow win in the governor's race. We've been talking about that here on the show. Democrat Kathy Hochul, the first woman to ever hold the governor's office in New York, now has become the first woman to ever win a term to be governor of New York. So she will have an additional at least four years here coming to her after she spent a little over a year in the governor's office after the resignation of Governor Andrew Cuomo amid a series of scandals in August 2021. It was a very narrow win, though, relative to New York uh, gubernatorial results of the last several elections, 53% to 47% roughly, still some votes being counted in the in the final tallies before the election is certified. But that's a far closer margin than any of Cuomo's three wins or Elliot Spitzer's win before that. Uh, but Hochul is the governor and a win is a win. So she will continue to uh, preside over the state government. Other Democrats won their statewide elections, again, by smaller margins than may have been expected or than they've won in the past. Comptroller Tom Napoli, Attorney General Letitia James, and U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, all victorious. And because of the results nationally, Schumer, all but certain here to retain his Senate Majority Leader post, very important for Democrats nationally to to continue to have a slim majority in the U.S. Senate. How, how slim exactly that is will depend on the Georgia runoff. Uh, but Schumer, all but certain to remain majority leader, key for Democrats nationally, key for New York to have someone in such a powerful position atop the U.S. Senate. The House of Representatives, though, has swung to Republicans. They will have a majority that looks like it will be quite slim. And so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, But we will be entering into a divided government situation in Washington for the final two years of Joe Biden's term. We'll see what happens, of course, in the next presidential election, which will coincide with a whole bunch more Senate elections and then the whole House of Representatives on the ballot again two years from now. So we will see what happens there. While Republicans significantly overperformed expectations here in New York statewide, it was a reversal of how things went across the country. And a lot of fingers are being pointed at New York for costing Democrats the majority in the House of Representatives. Now, going into this election, very few people thought at the beginning of the election cycle, at least, that Democrats would even have a shot at, at retaining the House. But then it turns out that the way things went down in very blue New York, where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one, that Republican gains in the House of Representatives in New York look like they will be a significant factor in the fact that the House is flipping to Republican control come January. Republicans flipped uh, several assembly seats, including in southern Brooklyn. They flipped some state Senate seats on Long Island and elsewhere, though Democrats mostly made up for those with other wins. uh, And Democrats will retain wide, wide majorities, if not super majorities, in both houses of the state legislature. But it was in the U.S. House races where the consequential Republican wins really took hold. 
uh, Republicans flipping a couple of Long Island districts, a couple of Hudson Valley districts. Um, so what is now a New York congressional delegation to the House of 19 Democrats and eight Republicans will become a delegation of 15 Democrats and 11 Republicans. New York lost a seat after the census and redistricting. So New York will have 15 Democrats, 11 Republicans in that delegation. The result sending shockwaves through the Democratic Party here and nationally. You have to wonder exactly how the results in New York may or may not impact Representative Hakeem Jeffries' effort to become the next Democratic leader of the House. He seems to be in line of, of being that leader and potentially the next House Speaker for the Democrats, but a lot to be determined there. Uh, there are also lots of fingers being pointed at Governor Kathy Hochul over her leadership of the Democratic Party here, the type of campaign she ran, and whether she hurt the down-ballot candidates by not campaigning that much. There's uh, outgoing state senators who lost that are pointing the figure at her campaign. Uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, who a lot of people are pointing figures at him. He lost his congressional seat in the Hudson Valley, of course, and he's the chair of the DCCC, the Democratic Ca Congressional Campaign Committee. He pointed out that, uh, you know, he and other House members had to run way ahead of Hochul in their districts to have any shot. Um, so there's a lot of fingers being pointed, and then many of them being pointed at the state Democratic Party chair, Jay Jacobs, who himself is of Long Island. He also leads the Nassau Democratic County Party. And Democrats getting beat in a bunch of races last year in 2021 on Long Island and then getting basically wiped out on Long Island this year, especially in his own backyard, but, but across the state, lots of problems for Democrats, Hochul winning by that narrow margin, House seats lost, et cetera. Lots of people calling for Jay Jacobs to go as the head of the state party, Hochul standing by him as of now. Uh, so a lot going on in New York politics. Uh, Republicans in New York will be looking for a new state party chair because the current chair, even though he had a very successful election in New York, he himself has been elected to Congress in Western New York. That's Nick Langworthy. So the Republicans will be looking for a new party chair. One of the names that comes up here is my guest today. Uh, he does not seem to be in the running for state party chair, though you never know what happens. I asked him about that in this conversation you're about to hear. And that is Republican Joe Borelli. He is the minority leader of the New York City Council. He represents a very conservative district on Staten Island, the 51st. He's been a major backer of Lee Zeldin for governor, Donald Trump for president, other fellow Republicans. He led one of the super PACs and was a spokesperson for that super PAC supporting Zeldin in this year's gubernatorial race. Borelli's all over the place as a Republican spokesperson and commentator. And so my conversation with Joe Borelli about what just happened in the 2022 elections and what comes next and a whole bunch of interesting topics in just one moment. Before we get to my conversation with Joe Borelli, I also want to quickly note some other recent episodes of the podcast for you to check out. We've been doing lots of election analysis and, and really looking from different perspectives and talking with people with a lot of different thoughts. So there's, there's not a lot of redundancy in these conversations. You should check some or all of them out. I've had recent conversations with uh, Basil Smeichel Jr., a Democratic strategist, a professor, and the former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party. A lot of interesting thoughts from Basil Smeichel Jr. Find that episode. I had a conversation with Alexis Grinnell, a Democratic strategist, also a writer on gender and politics. Uh, really interesting conversation with Alexis Grinnell. Check that out. And then I also had a very interesting conversation recently with Chris Walsh, 
whose name you might not have heard of, uh, but he has been the campaign manager for two elections this year uh, where Pat Ryan won competitive swing congressional districts in the Hudson Valley. First, a special election this summer to replace Antonio Delgado when he left Congress to be lieutenant governor of New York. And then the general election for a a, district, a congressional district under the new lines that he won in this November election that he will take switch offices and represent come January. So uh, Chris Walsh, the campaign manager for Pat Ryan, he was also the campaign manager for Brad Lander in his 2021 win for New York City Comptroller in another very tight race, very different race. So uh, a very interesting conversation with Chris Walsh. You can find that at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette website. And lastly, I also point to another election analysis show with Eljoy Williams, a Democratic strategist and the president of the Brooklyn NAACP, getting her thoughts on what happened. So lots of election analysis shows here from Max Politics. Find any or all of them wherever you get podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. New York City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli is with me now. Thank you for joining me. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you have to be feeling good about how Republicans performed in New York in these elections here in 2022. Big picture, what went right for the GOP here in New York? Well, we had a a trifecta of of come together, essentially, where we had the right candidate. Lee Zeldin was unquestionably the right candidate uh, of the four people engaged in the primary. Uh, We had a candidate who was able to raise enough money uh, himself to be competitive. uh, And there were uh, outside PACs that equalized the playing field uh, to what the Democratic incumbent had. Uh, And the third thing is the issues were consistently on our side, uh, consistent in, in almost every single poll. Uh, crime uh, and the economy uh, led as the number one issue affecting uh, New Yorkers. And uh, most people felt that the Republican Party would do better on both of those issues. So it was really that that, that trifecta which caused us to have uh, as many victories as we did statewide, although unfortunately we did come up short. Do you have a sense yet as to um, who made up the Republican voters for Lee Zeldin? There's obviously a very strong turnout among the Republican base. Do you have a sense at this point, um, even if we don't have quite the hard numbers yet, or maybe you have some some numbers to share in terms of how well he was able to do with those independent voters and even pulling Democrats to his side? Do you have a sense of that? Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, just the raw numbers would indicate that it has to be disaffected Democrats from the suburbs. Suffolk County uh, generated more votes than Brooklyn, uh, and it's uh, half the size, a little more than half the size. Um, When you look at the actual enrollment numbers in a place like Suffolk County, you see that there's no other possibility uh, but for uh, hundreds uh, and hundreds and thousands uh, of disaffected Democrats in every precinct just switching their allegiance uh, from the party that, that once really stood for the working class, the middle class class, uh, sort of the outer borough, uh, rough and tumble sorts of New York City, uh, to, to a far left, uh, woke, ideological, demagogical party that doesn't really uh, agree with the majority of New York voters. Hmm. Well, that's a little bit hard to say when 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 the statewide uh, Democratic ticket all all won, even if by even if by narrow margins. Um, no, 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 it is because because you saw it's, it's not something that's hard to say when you look at uh, who the Democratic Party continues to elect. 
in most of these races, it's the Democratic primary that chooses the person who gets elected. So the bulk of the Democrats who are elected to represent us end up being much further left than the the, the sort of broader body politic. Uh, I think when you had the statewide race, you really did see New York break, uh, obviously less than 50-50. If it was more than 50-50 in my favor, we'd be talking about Governor Zeldin right now. Sure. Um, but you saw it almost come 50-50. You know, five out of 10 people were were sort of unhappy with the, the general direction of the Democratic Party. Um, you said uh, in your initial answer here that Lee Zeldin was undoubtedly the right candidate. So let me come back to that. He obviously put forward a, a tremendously focused, aggressive, assertive campaign. He was going even before he won the primary, he was going all over the state running a really hard campaign, um, was the favorite in the primary, uh, had some prominence from being a congressman from Long Island, of course. Um, but is there not an argument to be made that to get over that final hump and actually win, it would have perhaps made more sense to have a more moderate Republican candidate? You talked about Democrats being dominated by the left. Here you have a more conservative Republican winning the primary. And what's your assessment here? Was he tripped up by having you know anti-abortion beliefs in the past where that was somewhere in the mix, obviously, of the election? He put out this um, you know, pretty remarkable ads promising not to touch the state's abortion laws if elected. That was trying to sort of undercut that attack on him. Um, is there any argument to be made that a more moderate Republican could have actually won this election? No, uh, I, I don't buy that. Um, for us, it's about turnout. We got about 2.6 million uh, registered vote, uh, re- votes. Uh, there's only 2.7 million registered voters. Um, for us, it was more about motivating our base and motivating independents that are sort of Republicans, but not happen to be registered. Uh, and if you come to a district like where I represent, people are people will, will wear a Trump shirt and be registered Democrats. Um, it's, it's really, for us, it was solidifying the turnout from the areas and regions regions and precincts and neighborhood uh, neighborhoods where we thought we had the best chance of getting voters. I think we lost uh, because of people like uh, Mark Levine, and I'll give him a, a shout out and I'll give him some credit. Manhattan uh, like, president. Yeah, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine. I mean, he was the only one two weeks before the, the race came to its conclusion that was out there sounding the alarm. I, you know, it, it, in that first uh, first couple of tweets he he was sending out and organizing events, he, he sounded almost crazy. Um, but we saw that he wasn't the crazy one, that he was seeing sort of the same numbers that we uh, on the Zeldin side were seeing, where our turnout is going to, was, was going to be tremendous. Um, recall, I mean, Zeldin got more votes than, than Cuomo did in some races. Uh, Zeldin got more votes than I think any uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate uh, in in. 30 years, probably since maybe the first Pataki run, the second Pataki run. So for us, it was always about generating turnout uh, and hopefully not seeing uh, an equal uh, turnout on the other side. I think any issue, uh, well, let, let's stay with the issue you mentioned. Abortion, we knew we were going to lose voters on that. I mean, there, there's no there's no scenario, right? No one, no one wants to hear someone be half uh, you know, half pro-choice and half pro-life. This is not one of those issues where there's a lot of gray areas. And for some voters, uh, someone who has any tendency towards pro-life just eliminates them from from our possibilities uh, as far as getting their votes. We knew that. We we, we digested that. We we accepted that and and, and moved on. Uh, I think what Lee did was the smart move because even your folks, the people in media, people in journalism, really couldn't challenge what he said because it was true. If he 
was elected governor, he can do almost nothing to change abortion laws. He would have almost no power to do that uh, with uh, two supermajorities uh, in the legislature. It's not going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Uh, and when he sort of addressed that issue, I think there was a, a small percentage of people. Uh, you know, again, we're, we're talking about small margins, maybe five percent, maybe ten percent, maybe less, who said, "You know what? They're right. Abortion's not a big factor in the New York race." <laughs> Excuse me. I was in Philadelphia, Phoenix, just about three or four weeks ago. And in Arizona, uh, after Dobbs, the court, the, the law in Arizona resorted to a 1912 law that actually prosecuted people for performing abortions. So you look at a state like Arizona, where abortion is uh, really an almost existential issue for some voters, um, depending on who wins the governorship. That's where you're seeing the abortion issue rise to the forefront. In New York, it was never going to change. I think people accepted that. I think the media and journalists even accepted that. Yeah, I mean, I won't, I won't, I won't dispute much of that. But, but come back to this margin here. So, a, a roughly three hundred thousand vote margin. Um, there's what you just said that maybe if more Democrats had had stayed home, that gives you a, a better shot. Anything else you'd point to that you think you know could have made the difference, other than you know another ten, fifteen million dollars, perhaps, or you know a lot more funding? Do you think there were aspects of the way that the campaign was run? Do you think there was specific messaging or platform topics that could have made the difference here? Because very clearly, this is going to be a playbook for Republicans moving forward. So, in terms of getting over that hump and maybe winning the governor's race four years from now, any other sort of tweaks to the machinery here that you would make? You know, Lee Zeldin ran an incredibly focused campaign, but he also wasn't necessarily offering a lot in terms of ideas for moving the state forward on you name it housing, transit, environment, some of these other things where maybe people were looking for a little bit more from him, maybe not. Yeah, I, I just think I think every race that we run or, or every election cycle, you really have a smaller number of issues that drive voters. Um, we can say this is a playbook, but if the crime issue subsides over the next two years or four years, uh, crime won't be the issue that it was. If that's the case, uh, would it be hard to will it be hard to have a candidate uh, differentiate on an issue where there is such a big delta between the Democrats and Republicans? I, I don't know. I mean, um, in a sense, we got lucky and I hate to say crime makes anyone lucky, but politically, it did make us lucky uh, that you had two parties with two really competing visions of what criminal justice system, the criminal justice system should look like. Um, when, when you get down to, you know, if environment is the number one issue facing New Yorkers, uh, I think the power, the government, the governing, the governing party in power at that day will remain in the governing power after that election, because this is not an issue that's that's as kitchen table, uh, that's as, uh, you know, <laughs> existential to family finances uh, as crime in the economy was in this particular race. Say a little bit more about what you uh, in the Republican Party, Lee Zeldin, the the organizations and entities supporting him, as I said, you were involved with with one of them. Um, say a little bit more about what you did to persuade some of the persuadables. Right. There were you had to you had to turn out the Republican base, as you said, but you also had to persuade some a whole bunch of independents and Democrats. There's clearly movement from uh, some moderate white voters, some Latino voters, some Asian voters towards the Republican Party. What did that come down to? What were the keys there um, other than the very obvious thing of saying we are going to be a lot more aggressive on 
uh, criminal justice, more policing, taking on hate crimes that are uh, affecting the Asian community and the Orthodox Jewish community the most. Um, you know, so, some of those criminal justice issues were obviously very key. Were, were there other things you think that were, were essential in, in moving the We shouldn't accept the premise that uh, criminal justice issues, you know, aren't leading uh, the, the kitchen table conversation. Oh, no, no. I'm saying I'm in, saying they are. I'm saying in addition to that. Right. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's start with Kathy Hochul's um, issues with New York City voters compared to Andrew Cuomo. Uh, even Siena about uh, I think the August poll or the uh, September poll of Siena voters um, had Kathy Hochul, you know, seven or eight points lower with African-Americans. Uh, I think 10 points lower with New York City residents, eight or nine points lower with women. So she was already starting off uh, at a disadvantage compared to where Andrew Cuomo was four years earlier with significant chunks of New York City voters. That said, we were able to target. And I mean, Zelda did a great job uh, of this uh, just early on establishing relationships with members of the Jewish community, with the Russian speaking community, with the Asian community. I mean, those are those are clearly uh, some of the targets. Uh, again, we, we also had an elected official, a Democrat, a Hispanic, a prominent person from the Bronx uh, endorse Lee Zeldin. That's something that had never happened previously, I, I want to say, since the 90s or, or since Governor Pataki, probably, where we had a prominent Hispanic Democrat endorse a Republican candidate. Um, all this, I think, adds up to inroads. Uh, you know, our, our target wasn't to win New York City. That, that, that That's almost an impossibility for, for any Republican candidate. Our target was to get 30 percent. We met that goal. Obviously, uh, Hispanics were a key part of that. Um, the IE that I was a part of, we uh, ran uh, Spanish uh, Spanish language ads on Univision, Telemundo, La Mega, um, all the big networks uh, for Hispanic viewers and listeners. No other Republican has done that. I mean, so we're starting from a zero uh, and we can only gain from there as to what ads uh, will do. In other communities, I mean, you mentioned what issues, you know, the, the Democratic Party has been fairly clear uh, when it came to specialized high schools. I mean, the party platform has all but said that there's too many Asian people in, in Stuyvesant High School in Brooklyn Tech, et cetera. If you're part of that community. Uh, and it's certainly a community, uh, and I don't like to make stereotypes, but it's certainly a community that that values education. I mean, this is the Asian community strongly values education amongst their children. You don't want to hear how your child can compete to the highest level and still not be accepted into a specific high school. That, that, that was a that was an issue that, that really came up. When, that, that's an issue that comes up when I meet with uh, Asian groups. You, you know, you, you look at the yeshiva uh, situation. Um, I, I don't have this, the, the, the article in front of me. I think it was the Times uh, and some of the independent studies uh, of the yeshivas and some of the data where four out of like 180 yeshivas are the ones that are really those that aren't teaching any science or math or English. Um, and yet there's sort of been this war on the yeshivas as institutions of learning. And whether you agree with it or not, it, it's existential for the Orthodox community. Uh, it's existential for, you know, the, the goal of the Orthodox community, which is sort of propagating themselves uh, and establishing a foothold uh, in, 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 in Brooklyn and, and, and living and existing there uh, in perpetuity. So you're, it's hard to be against that model or to be as strongly against that model uh, and to expect them to support you. I, mean, I, just, I just think it's it was short-sighted on Democrats to, to go out of their way to willfully abandon a group. Hmm. 
when you I, I noticed there was no New York Times piece on the Schenectady uh, um, test scores. Four percent of students in the Schenectady wow. school district uh, were, were able to do any math. Uh, there was no big times expose uh, on on them. Not not to not to be in the role of New York Times reporting uh, defender, but I mean I think the Times often covers you know state test scores. I'm not sure about specific school districts, but I, I hear you. That's a scandal. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, this is something Eric Adams, the Democratic mayor of New York City, talks about. Obviously, that it's that it's a you know school performance, especially in communities of color, is is, is a scandal in New York City and elsewhere. And I think education issues, as you're as you're talking about, you know, are obviously. Um, you know, talk about things that hit home for families. I mean, public safety, taxes, jobs, education. I mean, these are the these are the top things, right? That come into people's you know families and their and their homes. Um, say more about the campaign that Lee Zeldin ran and that you know you helped to support. Um, it seemed like this amazing contrast in styles where he went everywhere. He was all over the 62 counties of the state multiple times over the course of basically a year and a half running for governor. Kathy Hochul ran a Rose Garden campaign, lots of TV ads, very little campaigning. How much of a difference do you think those contrasts in style made? I I think um, it's not just that she focused on TV and nothing else. It was that her TV ads were focused on on abortion um, which, you know, after you saw the needle not moving after a period of time on that issue, it's almost like campaign malpractice to not change your message. And they waited much too long to change their message. And again, if, if not for people like, uh, you know, Mark Levine and some others who, who started to motivate voters towards the end, I think we could have actually uh, uh, won this thing. The, the Rose Garden strategy, you know, it, it's hard to remember the last time this actually worked. Um, I don't think it's a possibility to run a campaign like that uh, in the 2020s uh, because of the expectation that you will be uh, ever present on social media doing things and reporting things and and making comments and statements. Um, The the lag time between, um, you know, press interest in an issue and your appearance and, and and discussion of that issue is has shrunk like the, the days of sending out a press release uh, are over and waiting for someone to cover it i think that all adds up to the fact that you know the kind of hide in the bunker might have worked for joe biden during covid but that was the exception because of the pandemic you couldn't run that same playbook in 2022 she anticipated just general turnout amongst democrats and I mean, unfortunately, in, in places like Brooklyn, you have you, know, you you have a party apparatus that is struggling with, with their own internal fights. Uh, and it seems like they didn't have enough time to get their mechanism going to actually motivate voters. By the way, we see that on the Republican side, too. Um, you know, counties that were that have a stronger Republican Party, uh, Nassau, Suffolk, Staten Island, um, you know, some of the upstate counties, uh, certainly like Duchess, they outperformed. Uh, and big Republican counties, Westchester has, I think, the most Republicans in the state, uh, Republican counties like Westchester, uh, Monroe, Erie, they don't have strong Republican Party institutions and organizations, and they weren't able to turn out as many votes uh, as some of the others. That, that's that's very interesting. Um, let me come back to this question about the Zeldin campaign platform. Um I'm I'm very I'm very uh, cognizant of the fact that I could be uh, in a very small minority here. But whether it was whether it was Hochul, to be honest, or Zeldin, 
I felt like neither campaign was really offering a lot of ideas. It was a lot of focus on certain issues, whether it was the Democratic side or the Republican side and, and largely different issues that we talked about here. But I kept being interested in like, OK, where is Lee Zeldin's, you know, where is what is even on housing, something where I think Republicans should actually have a huge uh, entry point in New York. Right. Like we have this huge affordable housing crisis. Um I would assume in, in lots of places, you know, Republicans would be in favor of, you know, building. I understand there's issues on Staten Island and elsewhere and, and suburbs about that. So it gets tricky. But I was sort of and we and we at Gotham Gazette asked many times and other places asked. And it was sort of like not something he wanted to talk about. And I don't know. I, I, it seems to me that maybe there's there's some some votes left on the table there, but I could very well be wrong. And this yeah, is prior to my uh, sort of taking a step back from the campaign to work on the IE. Um, Zeldin and I had scheduled, I think, three or four press conferences. I think two were on congestion pricing. Uh, one was to offer another way to make up the uh, the projected billion dollars of revenue. And I can count on uh, one stump or one hoof, the amount of reporters that actually showed up to, to listen to what he had to say on a non-crime related issue. So I think that that is sort of a two-way street. The other part of it is, um, you know, when you're Lee Zeldin and you see the message of crime in the economy working and you see the needle moving every time you do a big ad buy or every time you you, you give an important speech or have a important coverage in the paper, um, you don't change it. You don't you don't you don't change it and start talking about another topic uh, when when the momentum is behind you, when when the, you have a tailwind. Um, normally, what causes people to get boxed in on issues, which subsequently makes uh, journalists cover those issues, both favorably and unfavorably, is debates. You know, and in this race, we had one single, you know, hour. It ended up being what, 90 minutes, maybe? It went a little longer, I guess. Not even, minutes. yeah, 70. 70 minutes. Yeah. So you had you had each candidate get the obvious hard question asked about them, right? Then you had the uh, each candidate get the, the puff question that they wanted to be asked about. There was a little bit of back and forth. And no one did get to hear Lee Zeldin answer a question about housing. No one did get to ask Lee Zeldin about, well, if you want to cut property taxes, how are you going to make up for, you know, this or that? Um, you have to blame Kathy Hochul for that. Yeah. If you'd have had three debates, you couldn't ask the same questions three times. Um, and I, I think Zeldin would have been not, now. I, I know Lee uh, and I know he was prepared for any sort of questions. Um, he had been asked a number of times on the campaign trail for specific answers about some things. Um, I'm sorry that he didn't answer you on housing. Um, yeah. But it never got coverage. Yeah. Well, I mean, there. yeah, listen, I, I said a number of times leading up to the election, obviously, there should be more than one one hour debate in any major election. I mean, that's really just not, you know, not not good democracy. Um, there was there was a housing question in the debate. And, you know, I don't I don't think either candidate answered it, you know, particularly. I I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah, no, you know, but again, to your point, by the way, by the way, Florida is building themselves into market affordability. You look at Brickell, you look at, you know, the skylines now of, of Jacksonville and Fort Lauderdale going up the coast. I mean, they are building both, you know, the single family homes as far as they can, and they're building vertical as much as they can. And it's kind of rocking and rolling there, and it's still pretty affordable. I mean, that, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Where, you know, where's the New York Republican uh, housing blueprint? That's this really is the moment for, though, um, and I've been saying this for a while now, like the midsize American city uh, is is going to be in such a, a prime position 
uh, coming up when when these companies can't afford to 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 occupy large rental office space in New York, LA, Chicago, and they and we've seen that they're relocating to Austin and Nashville and and uh, all over Florida. This is going to be like the apex of the mid-sized American city. And so, what's that on in our, on our detriment? What's yeah? What well, what right? What, where where could be where could be the mid-sized you know New York City that that takes off or become goes? From I, I said no to become the uh, the CEO of the Staten Island Economic Development Corporation. Uh-huh. But uh, if I did take that job, uh, it would have been my focus to make Staten Island the the sort of back office uh, headquarters of of Manhattan companies. You know, locate your HR, locate your your. Uh, you know, IT people on Staten Island sort of thing and and have your marquee office in Manhattan. We're primed for that. Now, thankfully, we're, we're going to be the hub of offshore wind, uh, and I'm excited for that. It's going to be an incredible, incredible uh, global investment uh, on the shores of the Arthur Kill and the Kilvan Cull. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm an energy geek, so uh, I'm actually really excited. We have three major ULERPs coming down the pike in my district. Everyone fights over member deference because they don't want a house too high or not affordable housing. I just want turbine manufacturing plants. Wow, very interesting. Uh, hitting hitting on another issue where again, you know, like I was saying, there could be could be a Republican sort of vision for you know renewable energy in New York. Republican and- Republican states, red states are leading in wind development by leaps and bounds. Uh, all of the United States wind development is Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, South Dakota. So. On housing development and, and energy development, you're getting at stuff where New York, you know, New York Republicans could have more of a more of a vision to offer here. Um, what's going to happen at the New York State Republican Party? Uh, Nick Langworthy has been the chair. He, by you know, several measures, has uh, performed performed well. Uh, he came in after the very tough 2018 election for Republicans and said. We're going to win the 2022 uh, gubernatorial race. Came pretty close. Um, obviously, a number of House seats have have flipped here in this election, uh, and so forth. But he is heading to Congress. Yes, sir. Is uh, is there going to be a new leader of the state party, and is this something you're interested in? Yep. He he will certainly be uh, stepping down um, uh, in early in the spring, uh, and our party will meet, and we will certainly have someone uh, new. Um, you know, it's, a, it's always going to be a, a back room, smoke filled room uh, debate on who it should be. There's certainly a lot of uh, armchair quarterbacking happening already. And I, I think we do want someone who comes from the, the Nick Langworthy vein of let's build as many uh, institutions uh, and organizations in counties around the state to mobilize for that special day. I mean, now it's, I guess it's two weeks, but that was the model that that he he brought in. Uh, he focused on the more granular grassroots stuff, and it certainly paid off. It paid off in the House races. Unfortunately, it didn't pay off in the governor's race. But, yep, we'll have discussions, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see an upstater or a Long Islander, which doesn't really narrow it down. <laughs> well, it removes you from the running. Well, I, I don't think I'd be I, I'd be allowed to uh, be a party officer as a city council member. Okay. Well, unfortunately, gotcha. uh, and I don't think I'd want to do it. I don't think I yeah. it, that would be something I'd like to do. Do you have a name that is on the top of your list or one or two? Oh, I got people? tons of names and I ain't going to share them. All right. Um, but but we, we have a better problem than the Democrats. I mean, our our chairman became a congressman. <laughs> you know, we're calling for their chairman's head because of uh, the, the big flop uh, last month, this month. So... Nick Langworthy, uh, yourself, major supporters of Donald Trump in the past. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, 
anywhere, uh, haven't heard his, his latest thoughts on, on the former president who, as we're speaking here, just declared his candidacy for 2024. Um, what's the status or what should be the status of, of sort of the Trump allegiance in the New York Republican Party? Where, where, where is this at? It was obviously something that Kathy Hochul used against Lee Zeldin. Zeldin has been a major Trump supporter, uh, voted against certifying the election in a couple of states in, in, in the 2020 results on the night of January 6, 2021. Um, Zeldin walked a very fine line in the campaign. He, you know, accepted Trump's endorsement, but didn't send out a press release about it, didn't even tweet about it, you know, so clearly was keeping it at arm's length. Did that hold him back from winning? Was that a could could that have made a difference if he had been again going back? I, I think I think anyone who was going to vote uh, against Lee on the Trump issue was sort of baked into our equation as as someone we're not going to compete for. Um you know, believe it or not, though, there are people that have moved on from President Trump in the Democratic Party who don't see him as this uh, current existential threat that they might have seen in 2018 when uh, Cuomo and Mark Molinaro ran for governor. And it was the highest turnout of any gubernatorial race uh, in the history of the state. You know, that was because there are a lot of Democrats in New York state who really, really, really don't like Donald Trump. And they showed up. That didn't happen. You know, the the, the people that are one issue Donald Trump voters were never going to get. Um, that said, look, I, I, I'm a believer in primaries. Um, Republican Party and the Democratic Party have fielded some of their best and most successful presidential candidates after a tough and divisive primary. Um, usually when you rearrange the deck chair to make someone win, uh, that person oftentimes loses uh, in a general election. So I, I'd be happy to see President Trump uh, on the ballot as our nominee this year. I'd be, I, I'd, frankly, though, I'd be happy to see Ron DeSantis or, or, or someone else. Uh, I would love to see Christy Nome because I have a friend in South Dakota, the mayor of Sioux Falls, Paul Tanhocken, who's going to probably run for governor. And we're trying to convince him to run for governor if Christy Nome is on the ticket somehow. So that'll be a fun personal uh, thing for me. But um as in any time in the midterm, in the, in the reelection campaign of a president, the referenda is always going to be on the president himself. And Joe Biden is going to have a tough time, you know, conjuring up the image that his presidency has been successful when by so many measures it hasn't been. Um, our world is in greater disarray than when Donald Trump left it. Um, our economy is in no way as strong as it was. Uh, certainly in the pre-pandemic years of the Trump administration. And I, I think families feel that pretty significantly uh, when they talk to each other around the kitchen table. So if that doesn't change and the referendum is about Joe Biden, I think the Democrats will have a hard time. Um, clearly, the election will be a lot of a referendum on Joe Biden. I think I think that's, you know, Come on, man. A, a given. So so that that sounds right. But you you seem a little bit backing away from your support for Donald Trump. Is that fair to to say when you say, oh, you know, I'd be fine if Donald Trump's the nominee. I'd be fine if it's Ron DeSantis. I'd be fine with others. Is it fair to say that you're distancing yourself a little bit from him, at least? No, no. I mean, I I, I will make an endorsement in the race at some point. I'm, I'm not going to tip my hat. Uh, here, but when when the prime, I mean, there's definitely gonna be a primary. I really do think there'll be a primary. Do you? Because I'm not sure that there's a lot of Republicans who want to take on Donald Trump. I, I believe there are people within the party that are going to primary him, hell or high water. Uh, and I believe that if one person enters the primary, uh, then you'll see more people trickle in. So, um, 
Again, I'll, I'll be making an endorsement. I mean, this would be a rare circumstance where I, I keep quiet about something like that. <laughs> don't you think don't you think at this point with coming out of this election that we just saw with how poorly people closely align with Donald Trump did that it's time for the Republican Party to move on from him? Isn't that the best thing for the Republican Party nationally at this point? I don't think we could lump that, make a cohesive argument rather about that. Um, so you had well, on top of the fact that he lost the last presidential. Oh, well, I think that's a better argument. I think a better argument is that but combine the two. Well, no, because you had almost every Republican candidate on the ballot uh, somehow endorsed by Donald Trump. Uh, and we don't talk about the people that uh, the media hasn't portrayed as Trump like or Trump esque. Now, you have someone like Carrie Lake. Stylistically, she is 100 percent similar to Donald Trump. I mean, there's no question about that. Right. And it would be a fair thing to say to say that sort of Trumpism was rejected with her loss in Arizona. But then look at Ron DeSantis. I mean, Ron DeSantis uh, is is so much like Trump in many ways that he's seen as a competitor to Donald Trump. And he won what used to be a purple state before he got there. Uh, with one of the most significant margins. You have Mehmet, uh, Mehmet, Mehmet, Dr. Mehmet Oz, um, who, who ran, you know, not wholly as a Trumper. He ran as an outsider. He's someone from New Jersey. I mean, I, I think his candidacy was flawed from the beginning. I think he yeah. got lucky in the primary. Uh, I think Doug Mastriani, uh, Mastriano was probably a, a more fair critique of, of sort of the Trump uh, issue because he was in, endorsed by Trump in the primary and then went on to lose the general election. I think that's a fair knock. Um, but there are so many people who ran with Trump's endorsement and happened to win. Other than some significant portion of the base, don't you think people are sort of just done with the 2020 election the relitigation, the lies, the ongoing, you know, conspiracy theories and so forth? I mean, doesn't that doesn't isn't that some of what this election shows that like People really want to move on from that. And that is so tied in with who Donald Trump is. And I mean, it, it just it, again, strategically speaking, even forget even sort of morally and, and you know, about the foundations of democracy and, and so forth, even strategically speaking. Is it, you know, I, it, I certainly would it, hope that the former president would not keep relitigating the 2020 race uh, as he prepares for 2024. Um, I, I think we saw sort of the 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 actual impact of that um, in 2020, although Democrats did manage to win. But there was this like, you know, abandonment and, and Joe Biden didn't really make an issue of the Russia collusion nonsense uh, and all of these, these kind of swirly Trumpy things that occurred during his presidency that didn't really pan out to anything. I think people were, were sick of that, too. Mm -hmm. All right. So you have right, we some, lost that one. So I guess that maybe that's not a good idea. What, say it again. We lost in 2022. So maybe maybe it was, yeah. uh, it was our era. Yeah, maybe. Um, so so you don't everything that happened January 6, 2021, the ongoing lies about the election that doesn't disqualify Donald Trump for you. Nothing disqualifies us from running for office and 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 being you know held to account by the public. I mean, if he but for you, you're you're a, you're a leader here. You know, one thing that strikes me in New York, right, is um, you know there's a lot of hypocrisy on the Democratic side about various things, right? But uh, Andrew Cuomo did a lot of bad stuff, and and the reason that he resigned from office is because Democrats told him to go. Right. And so there was 
again, you could you could pick this apart. There's there's all sorts of questions. Should he? Let, let me answer your question before you even go on. Please, thank you. You are, you are seeing the um, initial push to sort of sideline Donald Trump. The fact that his um, announcement last night was reported today on page 26 of the New York Post, and he was referred to as a Florida retiree, yes. an avid golfer. And he and and it made light of his preference for steaks and ketchup. Um, you know that is a clear institutional attempt to sideline Trump. The the uh, unknown right now is whether the people that pack those uh, stadiums and arenas who come to see him will be able to withstand um, that sort of institutional push. As an observer of politics, I'm eager to observe that for for a little bit and see how it goes. And so my last question for you on that is. In ways that you are very outspoken, calling out Democrats for all sorts of things that you you know see as hypocritical or you see as uh, uh, not you know fulfilling their duties of office. Um, don't Republican leaders like yourself have some responsibility to look at what he did on January 6, twenty one, and say, if nothing else. That's kind of disqualifying to send to send people after your vice president. I'd be happy to say it's bad, it's wrong, and all those things. Um, I, I don't believe in the word disqualifying for office. I mean, if the public are going to vote for him, they're going to vote for him. In your in your opinion, I'm, as a I'm not saying party. disqualified as in he can't mount a campaign and be on the ballot. I'm saying in terms of the sort of moral uh, judgment. No, no. I mean, I, th- I think he has as entitled uh, of a shot to run as anybody else. And and I think we'll have to see how it plays out. I mean, it's going to be right. interesting. But but I agree with you that that I think more people should be like me who are more just willing to say uh, and call balls and strikes when I think he's wrong. I mean, I, I, th- I thought he did a lot of uh, things that I disagreed with uh, during his presidency, to be honest. Right, but nothing is this nothing. Nothing is the same as sending people to go after your own vice president to try to stop the democratic, you know, process from concluding of a presidential election. I mean, you know, oh, there's all sorts of criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, do you like Mike Pence for president, by the way? Uh, I, I watched an interview this morning uh, on, uh, on Fox and friends. I think he did a, a good job. I think he's, he's trying to really thread a needle of, of establishing uh, his, himself uh, as a part of the Trump administration for the good things that Republican thing he did. Uh, without sort of the negatives, uh, I'm interested to watch, and I've actually I've actually helped CNN try to put put an audience together tonight for his town hall uh, at CNN. So it's going to be interesting to see him get uh, a little bit more uh, questions. I mean, this was you know a, a Fox and Friends, and I'm not even trying to pit network against network. Uh, a a promo book interview um, is never going to be as hard hitting as a town hall with audience questions. So it will be uh, interesting to see what he says tonight, and I'm actually going to watch. Okay. Last couple of questions for you. Um, coming back to the Dobbs decision at the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, obviously it was sort of the a, the conservative project, right, to uh, to get more justices on the Supreme Court and to overturn Roe v. Wade as one of the goals. That happened. Donald Trump named three Supreme Court justices. They were part of uh, the majority overturning Roe. Was that does that look like it was a big overreach and a big mistake because of how different that is from public opinion and the results of these elections? No, I, th- I think if if Trump uh, Trump ran and committed to do certain things, uh, I think it's a it's a worse it's a worse knock on our brand 
if we don't do the things we commit to do when we campaign and run. And I think to Trump's credit, he actually did appoint conservative judges to the Supreme Court, and he didn't hedge uh, his bets and and pick people that were more moderate or more crowd-pleasing. And this is why, when we talk about whether people should be in office or not, this is why I think there's a chunk of people out there, and in this case, you know, avid pro-lifers, who will say, I don't care what Donald Trump really, you know, says that sounds stupid at times or how he acts. He did the things that he promised um, to do on my issue, and he, and he delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have did, did we pay an electoral price for it uh, this time? Yeah, I, I think it certainly became uh, a dominating issue um, in, in a number of states. And I don't think really New York necessarily was one of those. Um, but in a number of states, uh, certainly Dobbs did uh, cause more difficulties for Republican candidates. How's Mayor Adams doing? You you have a pretty good relationship with the mayor. He's more of a moderate Democrat. He's even a self-described conservative on crime issues, as he said. Uh, he, he said that those very words in an interview with with me leading up to his election. Um, how do you feel like he's doing in his first 10 plus months? What do you want to see different from him as he heads towards year two? I, you know, I, 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 I'll give him a B, right, to go to a grading system. Um, he's saying a lot of the things that I agree with, um, his mantra of get stuff done only works though, if he actually gets stuff done. And, you know, one of the things I was working with them very, unfortunately to bring up Eric Ulrich, but we were working on this streamlining the DOB process, which is just holding up. It's, it's, it's frustrating, uh, when you see someone moving in the right direction uh, and they're just held up by the institutional bureaucracy. I, I tweeted this out yesterday. I mean, he, the mayor wants to build more affordable housing. I'm sitting on a small, you know, city planning application since 2018, uh, where I, whatever it is, it's like, uh, you know, 60 units, whatever it is. But it, it's been sitting as a pile of paper and since 2018 because of city agencies that refuse to to, to compromise or just give a determination or or whatever the case may be, multiple alphabet soup of agencies. If he was getting more stuff like that done, I'd be a lot happier. On crime, he's limited by the state legislature. I mean, it's you – know, and then here's the funny thing. When you speak to all of my colleagues at the state level except the most uh, radical DSA uh, um, elected officials, they all sound like Eric Adams. They all say, yes, yeah, someone who's arrested probably 20 times deserves to be remanded. Someone who, you know, someone who commits a violent crime deserves to be remanded. Obviously, we made mistakes. And um, it's it's but that's the change. Those are the changes that the governor got done in the budget. You know what, though? They're not they're not working and they need to go further because someone who's arrested still for 20 times, yeah. um, they're just not. That to me is the rub, right? The, the, if you look at the changes the governor got done, in the, which she didn't talk about on the campaign trail, I'm not sure why, but she got changes to the bail law done. It was seemingly part of why the budget was a week late, which was not a great look for her in her first budget. But she says it was partly because she held it up over that. There's also, also the Buffalo Bills stadium deal. Also not a great look how that came together. But there's some there's there's some issue with the implementation of this. And she says the courts are not doing it. But then she sort of dropped that because she's not supposed to criticize the courts. I don't know. But they're required to use the least restrictive setting possible. So when you have these progressive judges, I think they they do bend the law to their favor or or to the favor of the criminal. Listen, that that to me is what needs to be looked at most closely here, especially nobody's having most Republicans would agree that we don't need cash bail. Um, you know, we, we don't need you want you want remand. You want a dangerousness standard like the mayor. I, I, I got you. Which, which um, by the way, is, is is what New Jersey implemented. 
um, after us. And you you just don't see this this va- like you didn't see it as a as a uh, an issue go up in Governor Murphy and Jack Cittarelli last year because New Jersey implemented a bail reform system that was just more responsive to both criminal defendants and the needs of the public. Um, on the on the issue of city government function, let me come back to that in our last minute here. Um, the understaffing, or I mean, you might have a different perspective. The understaffing at some city agencies seems to be a really big problem right now. Do you agree with that? And yeah. and you, even as a small government conservative, uh, okay, so you agree with that. Um, do you think it's because uh, the mayor hasn't allowed hybrid work? Do you think it's because the salaries are too low? Uh, it, it, it's definitely a combination. Yeah. Um, some municipal labor um, should get a bump outside of the pattern only because they cannot find humans to actually occupy some of these jobs. Uh, we're not, we're not, I haven't even seen coverage of it, but the it departments of most city agencies are suffering tremendously because all the people who work in it can get a job making probably more money with a remote option. And Every single day we exist on planet Earth, more of our government functions have an IT component because we're going obviously digital for everything and the need on them is growing. And yet we're we're understaffed there. You know, the last mayor hired 30,000 people to to like, you know, trim trim bushes in the parks. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that we don't need. Just, you know, even th- even though we couldn't even hire those people at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, we, well, he, we, yeah. I mean, he, he, I thought you were going to say he hired 30,000 people to sort of like do stuff at City Hall that nobody. Oh, really right. His special or, assistants. Right. That's yeah, a whole exactly. different argument. Uh, and on that front, the I know you're close with a lot of law enforcement, the contract negotiations, the the starting pay. Uh, do, do you have do you have insights into the. P- the PBA, the Patrolman Bem- Benevolence Association uh, negotiations representing the most, you know, police officers, including those who come in at entry levels. Do you have any insights into th- what those negotiations could look like? And if there's any way that we could see a sort of a radical overhaul of how this works, because even though there's some jumps after several years, it's still just pretty stunning that, the you know, first year police officers are making forty two thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this has been a problem going back to 2007 when they made even less. Um, you know, it, it's difficult for any union to get a contract outside of the pattern, including the PBA. And although they go to PERB for arbitration, uh, they just never seem to they, traditionally, they just never seem to to get any significant bump. Um, you know, the, the, on the good side with the police department, there are a lot of promotional opportunities. So you you don't end up with a lot of people uh, in the rank of police officer after, say, 10 years. Most of them go on to become detectives or sergeants or whatever. Uh, and, you know, so so that's thankfully an option for people. But when you could go and be a regular police officer in Nassau County and make significantly more money or going, you know, you could go uh, become a Port Authority police officer and and own, you know, a vacation house in Boca. Um, it's tough to it's tough to stay on, especially again, you know, we're one of the only police departments now uh, without qualified immunity where we have criminalized the compression of someone's diaphragm. And this has been an issue for a long time. Uh, and I, I'm surprised that it really hasn't gotten the coverage that it has. I mean, if you, you, you know, you compress somebody's diaphragm almost every time you you with restrain someone um, and now to criminalize police actions is is a, it's a dangerous precedent. And I think that's why a lot of police officers have taken a step back. 
I was I was just going to ask you that, but you seem to get there. I mean that 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 seems to be another undis, under discussed element of what's you know what's been going on with public safety is is what's actually happening among the rank and file at the NYPD. I mean even even the New York Post had quite an expose about how lots of officers they talk to are are very frustrated from within the department, and I I, I would say you know some of that uh, the pay scale which they talked about you know is is probably a key part of that, but. Um, a, a lot of issues. So it's like that. All right, we can, we can keep going for hours here. I'll, I'll leave you there. Joe Borelli, minority leader of the New York City Council, a Republican from Staten Island and uh, uh, supporter of Lee Zeldin for governor and, and, and others. Uh, thank you for the time. We'll talk more down the line. Um, appreciate it. Sounds good. Take care. And just a quick post-interview note here. I didn't in the interview ask Joe Borelli about allegations around the super PAC that he was involved with, Save Our State New York, illegally coordinating with the Lee Zeldin campaign. Super PACs and campaigns are not allowed to coordinate their efforts. There have been some allegations from Democrats that there was a legal coordination. A complaint was made to the State Board of Elections to look into it. There is not necessarily a investigation underway. There was some reporting about uh, that there possibly would be. But I later asked Borelli about it by email. He said he knows nothing of an investigation beyond what he's seen in the newspapers. He said no one has contacted him or the independent expenditure group Save Our State to his knowledge. And previously, he's denied any illegal coordination between the super PAC and the campaign.